everybody. My name is Maria Palazzi. I'm a professor of design and an affiliated faculty at the Advanced Computing Center for the Arts and Design at Ohio State. Welcome to Science Sunday. These lectures are sponsored by eight centers in the College of Arts and Sciences. This is one of the many important ways that Ohio State, as a top public research university and leading land-grant institution, carries out its commitment to serve, to educate, and engage our communities. If you would like to subscribe to the monthly Science Sundays emails, there's a simple web form on the Arts and Sciences website, and it's just as easy to find by Googling Science Sundays OSU. And a reminder that the last lecture of this year's series will be presented on April 5th by Dr. John M. Horak, the Neil Armstrong Chair of Aerospace Policy at Ohio State. I'd also like to remind you that after the talk, we'll have a few minutes to ask questions, and then there's a reception upstairs with our speaker in the traditions room, which we hope you'll all attend. In her talk, Collections as Data, our speaker, Kate Zaward, will explore how libraries and sorry, how libraries and archives are presenting their collections so artists, researchers, and the curious can interact with them in new ways. Kate is Director of Digital Strategy at the Library of Congress, where she leads a group focused on digital innovation and expanding the use of digital collections. She led the creation of LC Labs, a library unit devoted to experimentation and collaboration, as well as the implementation of the first library-wide crowdsourcing program and other projects enabling computational use of the library's collections. She previously served as Chief of, digital, of National Digital Initiatives and managed the Digital Repository Development Team, contributing leadership, code, and a passion for the mission of the agency. Under her leadership, the Library of Congress added three petabytes, that's equivalent to three million gigabytes of digital collections, including web archives, the first born digital manuscript collections, and 10 million chronicles chronicling America newspaper pages and three-fourths of a trillion tweets. It's better than Donald Trump. <laughs> Before coming to the Library of Congress, Zwar led the software development team responsible for the digital preservation at the U.S. Government Publishing Office. Please join me in welcoming Kate to the stage. Thank you so much for that warm introduction, and um, thank you to all of you for sharing your time with me today. I feel honored to be invited as part of the speaker series, which I think is incredible, and I wish that I lived in Columbus because this seems really neat that you get to get a little bite of people's work uh, every once in a while. Um, so I'm here today to talk to you about um, collections as data. So the idea is that um, we can use digital collections in libraries and archives in new ways and, new, and explore them in, in new, um, in new using new methodology. Um, so when we digitize material and put it online, it has the important benefit of um, letting everyone in America see these, see these treasures that we're holding on behalf of the American public. But also, because they're digital, they have different ways that we can approach them, um, and I'll give you some examples. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the Library of Congress, uh, Library of Congress itself. So um, the Library of Congress is um, 
your library. It's one of America's national libraries. And I want to do some bragging on, on your behalf, because it is part of the heritage that you have as an American citizen. And in fact, it's open to everyone. So anybody can go on lsu.gov and use the online collections. Anybody who can use the Ask a Librarian serv service and interact with a reference librarian to have their questions answered. Um, and anybody can come to this beautiful building and um, see some of the treasures that we have in the exhibits. Um, anybody over the age of 16 can get a reader's card. So if you find yourself in Washington, DC, and would like to see some of these in person, you're very much welcome to do that. And uh, because it's your library, I want to brag a little bit about it on your behalf. Um, America's Library, the Library of Congress, is the largest library on planet Earth, and I'm pretty sure the solar system. Um, it has 838 miles of bookshelves, 146 million items, including um, 24 million books. It's just, it, it is at a scale of collections that's really difficult for me to imagine. So let's just dive into a few of those um, in more depth. Um, so the library has the world's largest collections of maps, music scores, uh, legal material, films, sound recordings, comic books, and telephone directories. We have 124,000 telephone directories. It's incredible. Um, so what you're looking at here is an image of our, uh, the stacks in our ge geography and maps um, collection. This goes on for two football fields. It's 5.5 million maps, so many maps that we can't afford to catalog them or even list them. They're organized by geography and time, so that's actually how you use the collection. Um, we have the world's largest collection of recorded sound in the world. Um, and I should mention that a lot of the pictures I'm using are from the collection. So you can see the URL. And, you know, I love this picture. Isn't this amazing? Um, so uh, on, we have uh, recorded sound on vinyl, on lacquer disc, on wax cylinders, uh, jazz recordings, including Ella Fitzgerald's personal artist collection, um, radio, um, including tens of thousands of World War II broadcasts. Um, field recordings, original field recordings of American music and folk life from our American Folklife Center, and uh, first-person accounts by American servicemen and women through our Veterans History Program. Um, the world's largest collection of personal papers and papers of organizations. The, mem the papers of members of Congress alone comprise about 900 collections. We have um, presidential pa 23 presidential papers from George Washington to Calvin Coolidge. Um, and, and the papers of inventors and luminaries and, and Americans and, and historians and historical figures, including Susan B. Anthony, Frederick Douglass, Benjamin Franklin. Um, this is a letter from Benjamin Franklin to a friend of his in which he sketches out his concept for the bifocals. Um, Robert Oppenheimer, uh, the, the uh, Wright brothers, and Groucho Marx. Um, and not only is this collection so massive, but um, it grows every day. So through the United States Copyright Deposit System, about 20,000 volumes arrive on our loading docks every day. And about half of that, about 10,000, is selected for permanent acquisition to the collections. And so that means, uh, it was just really, when I started working at the library, I could not wrap my head around the scale of it. That means we add about the equivalent of my hometown library to the collections every week. Uh, so it's pretty good, right? Like you're, it's, it's, uh, that doesn't include the digital collections. So when I say digital collections, I'm, I'm inclusive of both the material that we're scanning, so like old maps and old newspapers that we're taking images of to put online to share with all of you, um, but also the digital collections. Um, so we're archiving websites, we're collecting eBooks, those sorts of things. And so 
a, a few years ago, at the library uh, started a program, LC Labs, to um, think about how we might use these collections. Beyond just being able to share them more broadly, what does digital get us that we hadn't, didn't have before? Um, and before I talk to you about that, I've got a, sh a short story to tell. Um, so you recognize these two cuties? <laughs> James Madison and, um, and, uh, and Alexander Hamilton. And so I'm going to tell you a short story about the, uh, the Federalist Papers. And I know you all know what the Federalist Papers are, but for those of you who need your memory refreshed, um, the, uh, Hamilton and Madison and John Jay wrote a series of papers trying to convince um, colonial citizens to ratify the Constitution. Um, and because they were revolutionaries at the time, they wrote these under a pseudonym, Publius. Um, after, you know, after the Constitution was ratified, I'm sorry if you haven't seen Hamilton, that's a spoiler, um, but it, it, does, it does happen. Um, we started to get a sense of authorship. Um, uh, so Madison asserted he wrote some. Hamilton asserted he wrote others. Actually, the, the first list that Hamilton writes is after he's shot in his duel with Aaron, Aaron Burr. So um, he is literally dying of a gunshot wound and writing this down. And so it contains a bunch of known errors. He, he um, says he's written art, uh, essays that were definitely written by Hamilton. And so um, after a period of years, historians kind of worked out who wrote which. Um, John Jay wrote five and went homesick. I, this is my conspiracy theory, though. I think that he just got tired of dealing with Hamilton, uh, but that's not uh, supported by historical facts. Um, <laughs> so uh, after all of this, 12 papers remained in dispute. There were 12 papers that no one was really sure who wrote uh, what, until statistics got involved. So there was an American historian, Douglas Adair, who noticed that Madison used the word whilst and Hamilton used the word while. And that was not enough to, dis to determine authorship of the papers. Um, they just don't use that word enough. Um, but the historian thought, maybe, th maybe there's something here that statistic statisticians could, could use. So in 1959, um, he contacted two um, statisticians, Frederick Mosteller and David Wallace. This is from their book. I really love it. If you're interested in uh, statistics or Bayesianism at all, it's a great book. They're super funny. When two statisticians, both flanks unguarded, blunder into historical and literary controversy, merciless slaughter is imminent. Our persistence needs explanation. And so what they did was they wanted to see if they could use word frequencies to determine who wrote what. So they literally took all the sentences from the known Madison and the known Hamilton papers and cut out words and alphabetized them, and then cut, did the same with the, with the unknown papers. Um, from um, uh, Douglas Wallace's autobiography, he talks about that, uh, that work of literally cutting all those words out, hundreds of thousands of words, and um, they had a lot of grad students and help, but every once in a while someone would open the door and words would go flying, ruining many, many hours of work. It's incredible. Um, and they were actually able to determine that Madison was the principal author of the unknown works um, to a, a very high degree of statistical significance. Um, and the, one of the single um, best discriminators they found was the word upon, uh, which I found really interesting because its rate is a three per thousand for Hamilton and one sixth per thousand for Hamilton. And that is a differentiator that a human being could not really discern. You really need mathematics and you really need the power of computation to, to do that. Um, so it's kind of a neat story about how we, we're using computation with historical artifacts, with, with archives and library material. Okay, fast forward to the future. Um, in 2012, uh, you may have heard the story in the news. 
Um, there was this uh, very popular fiction novel, uh, Cuckoo's Calling. Um, people noticed that Robert Galbraith, who um, was, according to his biography, a, like, a celebrated military officer, really uh, described women's clothing very well. So there was, um, there was a, a little bit of a question about whether that person was really a real person and who the actual author was. Um, and someone tipped off uh, a, a mathematician and computer scientist, Pat Patrick Jola, that it could possibly be J.K. Rowling. And so he used the exact same mathematical analysis that they used on the Federalist Papers um, many years later to prove that actually it was J.K. Rowling who wrote that. And what's so neat about this is that instead of taking three years to do this computation, he was able to do it in a few days. And the, the difference is both um, the power of computers. Um, so he, Patrick Jola has on his website open source software that you can try this at home. You can do this right now instead of using an army of graduate students in three years. And also machine-readable text. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in, in, a, in a second. So this is just one example of how we can use computation and data analysis to uncover things that we didn't know, right? So the Federalist Papers were in existence for 180 years before we, we, had, we knew enough about data, data science to be able to show that Madison wrote those papers. What other hidden pieces of knowledge are in the collections if we look at it in just a little bit of a different light? Um, and so that's one of the things that Labs is exploring. And I encourage you to go to our website if any of this seems interesting to you. It's at labs.loc.gov. And this is um, a sort of slice of our experiments. Um, and I will talk to you about a few of those. But first, if you, mentioned, if you remember, I talked about machine-readable text, the difference between the Federalist Papers and the J.K. Rowling. And so let's talk about machine-readable text for a second. Um, so um, we have... Um, one of the things we offer to the public is a searchable database of historic newspapers. It's called Chronicling America. There are 16 million newspaper pages on there right now. And what the, one of the things that so excites me about that collection is that it's searchable for the first time. So when I bought my house, I, I put in the address and I found the actual um, the building permit from 100 years ago. Uh, I could never have found that before using traditional indexes. And so here's an example. Um, I just searched Buckeye in, because um, I know how to pander. Um, I, <laughs> I just searched Buckeye. And um, a thing that I only learned after coming to the library was um, it was very popular to publish poems in, in, in newspapers um, in the, in the um, 1800s and 1900s. Um, and you can see here that um, it, it, it knows the, the word Buckeye is here. And the way, we use, the, way we, the way we do this is through optical character recognition. So basically, we teach computers to say, this is what a letter A looks like. If you see a picture that looks like this letter A, it's the actual letter A. We can translate pictures of text to, to words that machines can, can, um, can compute against. The problem is, a lot of our collection looks like this. And it's very hard to teach computers how to recognize handwriting. Because if I have typewritten letter A, it's pretty much always going to look like the letter A. But you all know, like you've been to the doctor, the letter A can look like any number of things, right? Um, and so here's an example of um, a letter from the Abraham Lincoln collection um, in which he is writing to his first fiance. Um, and none of that is, is searchable. So if you wanted to search her name, that date, anything that he describes in the letter, you wouldn't be able to. Um, so one of the ways that we're um, helping unlock these collections is through our crowdsourcing program. Um, and that's at crowd.loc.gov. 
So what we're doing is we're putting images of handwritten collections or other types of collections that uh, optical character recognition doesn't work very well for. And we're asking people to help us transcribe that and review the work of others. Um, I really love this letter because it's so savage. Um, you must know that I cannot see uh, see you or think of you with entire indifference. Um, he is like he, it's a breakup letter, right? It's a um, and he's very polite and very the language is very florid. And I think it's a really neat way to get a sense of a person by reading the things that they've written, not just reading about them. Um, we recently put up um, Rosa Parks's personal papers on the site for transcription. And it, this brings me to what I think the real value of this crowdsourcing platform is. And it's not actually ch changing handwritten text to machine readable text. It's inviting people to engage with the collections. So if you are curious what the Library of Congress has, and you go to the website and you don't have a research question, what's your foothold, right? And I think this can be your foothold. And um, I, uh, when we put her papers up, I had the honor of transcribing one of her letters. Um, and this is one uh, that she is, has, is writing to a friend of hers about the day she was arrested. I had been pushed around all my life and felt at this moment that I couldn't take it anymore. When I asked the policeman why we had to be pushed around, he said he didn't know. The law is the law. You are under arrest. I didn't resist. And I have to tell you, the feeling that I had holding her words in my hands for the benefit of the American public for you, like now and to come was it, it was really um, it really touched me and I really hope that through this platform we can provide all of you with the same feeling the feeling of holding Abraham Lincoln's words or Rosa Parks's words in trust for the American public um, I think it also um, there is also value in thinking about these people as just normal human beings. So a lot of the manuscript collections aren't these um, stirring letters. They're sometimes just normal things that people are writing to each other. And um, here's two examples from the Rosa Parks collection. One is um, her pancake recipe that she scribbled on the back of, a, of, a, um, of an envelope. Um, the secret ingredient is peanut butter. I've heard it's really good. Um, I have not made it, but I should. Uh, and this is a, a postcard from Dr. Martin Luther King. Dear Mrs. Parks, we're having a wonderful experience touring Europe. Hope things are going well with you. I am thinking of you constantly. We'll see you soon. And I think there's real, um, re a real important value in thinking about these people as human beings who had lives and families and made choices and not icons frozen in time. And I think when we read about people in history books, we can sort of idolize them instead of thinking about the reality, the, full, the fullness of the hu their humanity. And that's what I find so exciting about this. OK, let's talk about a few other things that we're doing. Um, so uh, this is um, Library of Color. Um, a colleague of mine, Laura Rubel, uh, who's a software development librarian, made this. She was just trying, um, she was trying out some, um, some tools that we had to offer. And this is just her way of like kicking out the kinks. And so she analyzed different prints and photographs collections. And each one of these represents an item. And so what she's done is she's used software to pull out the six dominant colors in each one of these items. And um, let's play a little game. So she, she did a few of these. She did baseball cards, um, cartoons and drawings, Japanese fine prints, Sanborn maps, WPA posters, and World War I posters. And so I'm going to ask you, what do you think these colors represent? What's this palette? Is it baseball cards? Is it cartoons and drawings? Is it Japanese fine prints? I hear Japanese fine prints. Anybody else? WPA posters. 
Um, one more. Baseball cards, cartoons and drawings, Japanese fine prints, Sanborn maps, WPA posters, World War II posters, World War I posters. Good. Maps? Anybody else? It's baseball cards. <laughs> baseball cards. <laughs> I think it's so neat how you can see the different palette of the collections, and you can kind of see how those palettes change over time as we are collecting different kinds of things. Um, it's surprisingly um, also um, offered a very tangible benefit. Um, so if you see these uh, blue lines here, so we showed this application to one of the curators in the prints and photographs division. And this is Civil War maps, and you can kind of see the palette is very Civil War looking, um, but except the blue. Um, so she said that the blue shouldn't be there. They weren't printing with blue then. Um, and so we looked further into it, and we found uh, those were examples of items about the Civil War, not during the Civil War. So they had been mischaracterized. And so I think it's a really interesting example of how different views into the collection can sort of give us new learning about them. Um, now I, I've been warned not to go too long because there's cake upstairs and people will just start <laughs> leaving. So I'm going to try to stick to my time really carefully. Um, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about a new program that we've started, the Innovators in Residence program. Um, this is a, uh, an effort by my team to bring in uh, people for short-term high-impact projects to do something, something interesting and creative to sort of spark the imagination in other people, but also to like, you know, it's also nice to bring people in to learn from them and, and, and get their experience and perspective. Um, so the first one that we ever had, uh, we advertised as uh, a temporary assignment for library staff. So we, uh, we asked people to propose a project, and we selected um, a software developer in the library named Tong Wong. And he was really interested in chronicling America. So I mentioned the uh, newspapers a little bit earlier. Um, so as I've mentioned, we have OCR. The OCR will pick up characters, so I can search for Columbus, Ohio. But what it can't search for is pictures. And the, the pictures in this historical database are really incredible. So they contain like all the cartoons from World War II. Like, can you imagine that, like looking through a list of just all the cartoons, all the political cartoons from World War II? Or um, sometimes the only known picture of a historical figure um, exists only in these newspapers, um, maps from the Western Front, those sorts of things. And so what Tong did was, um, oh, here's an example of just pictures. Um, Tong, um, wanted to uh, think about a way that we could um, identify and pull out these images. So he started, uh, he made a software application called Beyond Words that invites people to, um, to draw a box around images and, and caption them. Um, and so this is what it looks like. This was before our crowdsourcing project, the one that I talked about earlier. So this was when the idea of crowdsourcing at scale was still kind of new to the library. Um, and uh, this was up as an experiment, and you can still uh, take a look at it today. Um, so we did what we decided to do was World War I era newspapers. So we just picked that, that simple slice and invited people to do this. Um, and we ended up with this incredible um, corpus of images that you can look at through the Beyond Words application. Um, but what we found was it, it was not scalable. So it took us many, many months just to do World War I. And at the rate we were going to do, um, it, we couldn't have finished the corpus. So that's sort of why we moved on to um, transcription. Um, but uh, this, this is a like a, what is it? When, like when you, a cliffhanger. So there's a, this is a cliffhanger. I'll, get, I'll come back to it because you know, there's a satisfying ending to the story. 
Um, so our next innovator in residence was uh, Jer Thorpe, who's a data artist. Um, he came to the library. He did a ton of things. So if any of this is compelling to you, please look at the website. Um, he does a really nice podcast where he sort of introduces the library and explores some of the edges. It's very compelling. Um, and he explored the library in colors in a different way. So what he did was he took um, 25 million titles in our holdings, and he identified the color words, so Black Panther or Iron Giant, and assigned them to colors. And so here you have George Washington and the cherry tree, and what we're, what we're seeing is the word cherry. And then he compared all of the different sorts of collections, so visual materials, US literature, music, maps, to to see how, what the color words we are using in all the collections. I think it just is, is beautiful and also another way we can visualize our holdings over time. This brings us to today. So we have two innovators in residence right now, um, Ben Lee and Brian Fu, who are working on two projects um, that I'm excited to share more about. Let's start with Brian. Okay, so Brian is working on a project called Citizen DJ, um, in which he is, uh, so we have, as I mentioned, a really large collection of recorded sound. And so he's thinking about ways that we could remix and reuse that sound in, in new ways, um, specifically focused on hip hop. Um, thinking about how we can make the most use of our collections, especially in communities that may not think of the Library of Congress as a resource. Um, so uh, he is working on what, what is like a, a couple of sample sets and also a um, user interface that you could do this yourself. Um, there's going to be a big rollout, but if you promise not to tell, <laughs> I will give you a quick preview. Is that okay? You promise? Okay. So here we have um, items from the John and Ruby Lomax collection. So John and Ruby Lomax did a southern, did this trip throughout the southern United States recording American folk music. And we're taking less than one second samples from those items using, um, using one of those items and a beat pattern to make, to make music. Let's, let's try one more. We're just randomizing it. I'm not even optimizing it because I'm not. I don't know how to do that. And so I can, just, I can play with the beats per minute. I can mute this. So you can see how hip hop artists and people who are curious and like to play could use this to um, think in new ways about the collections. So look for something about that maybe this summer. Um, we'll have a, a full public launch. I think it's going to be really fun. Um, the next project is uh, Ben Lee's. And um, do you remember the cliffhanger I mentioned earlier? Um, the newspaper data. Um, and so Ben thought, um, Ben is a, um, a computer science PhD student, and he thought, wow, that's a great training set for machine learning. And so um, for those of you who aren't familiar with machine learning, it's how, how we train machines to learn 
make predictions, and then refine them. So what we can do is give them a, tr a training set of known, um, so all of those known coordinates of items on a page, what, what does a photograph look like, what does a cartoon look like, feed that into an algorithm, and let the machines do the work. And so he's using the Beyond Words data, and he is getting some really great results. So here's an example of an output of one of his um, algorithms that shows that this is a photograph probably to the order of 84% probability, some comics and cartoons. And so he's now running this through the whole corpus of, eight, of 16 million pages. And um, at the end, we'll be able to have these, um, like I said, these sort of photo morgues of maps from World War II and cartoons from World War I that'll be also interesting to all of us, but really useful for scholars and researchers. Here's an example of some of the really cool images you might find. Um, yeah, people were wild back then. <laughs> um, we're, we're also thinking about how we can use machine learning in libraries, both ethically and practically. Um, this is, machine learning is a, um, a technology that's um, pretty far along in some sectors, but in libraries a, a little bit less so. Uh, our data tends to be a little bit less um, structured, and our ethical concerns tend to be a little bit more um, real, I guess, I don't know. Um, so, uh, so those are some of the things that we're working on um, in terms of computation and digital collections. Another thing that we can think about in terms of digital collections is how it enables American creativity. Um, how can the fact that these collections are available online make them more amenable to use by cr creators and crafters and artists? And I'd like to give you a few examples of this. Um, so this is a stained glass window at the library, um, and this is a, a Christmas ornament that was made from it. Um, oh, do you remember the Library of Colors that I showed you before? So um, Laura Rubel, who's an amazing human being, um, took, took the output from, so she wrote a software application to, to generate this, took the image, printed it onto fabric, and sewed it into bags. And I think it's just a, such a great example of different kinds of making, and also the, um, building on the past creativity, you know, so she needed, um, she needed the source code to do that, she needed a whole bunch of things to make this possible, and it's, I think it's just beautiful. Um, there's a popular shoe, um, shoe company that allows you to design your own sneakers, and so just one night I was playing with some images in the library's collections. This is um, an owl in one of our reading rooms, and I put it on sneakers, and I thought, wouldn't it be neat to think about how we could make wearable art with, with some of the collections that we have, make, we have available? The newspaper collection, which you can tell I'm a huge fan of, um, has a bunch of sewing and uh, embroidery projects in it. Um, and I think one uh, possible thing to think about is how do we pull those out and make sort of a book or a collection of, of things that you can make out of historic newspapers. Um, we're starting to explore 3D printing. Um, so we have a number of 3D objects in the collections, um, and we can scan them and print them for scholarly use or student use. I 3D printed the small person, but not the, <laughs> not the jaguar. Um, <laughs> So um, let me skip ahead. Let's play one more game. Um, so uh, this is another thing that Laura Rubel of the um, bag and the colors made. Uh, this is called Photo Roulette. Um, and so what she did is she pulled um, newspaper, uh, sorry, uh, photographs out of the collection and the dates. And she invites you to guess the date in the photograph. And you can play along at home if, if you want to go to the website. So let's do, what year do you think this is? I hear 26. 
48, 35, who said 35? That's exactly right. <laughs> so I'll end this talk with um, an invitation to all of you, um, and that is how can you use this library that was created for you that we hold in your trust? How can you use it tomorrow? So do you have questions? Would you like to ask a librarian? Um, do you, would you like to participate in the crowdsourcing project? Are there projects that you'd like to work on that you could use our collections for? Um, I really hope that um, something that I said inspired you to think about how this might fit into your own lives and how you might be able to make use of it. Thank you very much. Do you have any questions? Yeah? Outsourcing, um, who's validating what's being put in? Gosh, that's such a great question. I imagine it takes a ton of people to like make sure <laughs> so I'd like to acknowledge um, some uh, some very exciting people here, um, uh, General Ferreter and Mrs. Ferreter, who um, are the parents of one of my team members, actually. Um, <laughs> um, um, so uh, one of my team members, Megan Ferreter, started this, um, was one of the people who started the Smithsonian Transcription Center. And uh, the Smithsonian and the National Archives went before us on this. So it was really great that we could benefit from their wisdom. Um, and what we found, actually, is that the data does not need validating by a staff member. So um, let me pull up the site, actually, and show you. Um, so we, what we do is we, um, one of the design principles we have is trust, trusting that people will do their best and, um, and uh, participate with, with, with full faith. And so one person transcribes. We have a couple of suffrage era. Um, so one person transcribes and then submits for review. And then another user reviews the work of others. And they can either uh, send it back for, uh, they can either edit it or approve it. Um, and that's the end of the workflow. And so what, um, what Megan Ferreter found in her work at the Smithsonian was that um, they actually built in a step for staff review. And they ended up not needing it. So there were a lot of worries that people would vandalize or that they would not take it seriously. And what we find actually is that people really do take the work seriously. And in fact, they um, you know, will bounce things back for like a too many spaces or, or a missing period. Um, and, uh, and they engage with each other on forums and on social media. And that's one of the really neat things is you can hear people kind of having dialogues about what they're finding and, and um, it, it inspires their own work and their own, um, their own interests. So um, I, as far as I know, there, has been, there have been no known incidences of vandalism um, on any of these pages. Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, a little bit more structured than a Wikipedia, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm General Ferreter and I now run the National Veterans Memorial Museum in our new hometown of Columbus, Ohio. So please come and see us. <laughs> so as Megan and Kate uh, have pulled this together, here's the most amazing thing to me. So in past years, we took pictures of stuff and got it online. And I think that's called digitization, according to what my daughter's talking. So, so that's digitized. But when you type it, and you put it into an authoritative database, it's searchable, trackable, and now collectible and connectable. And what that means is, the example I always use is, someone thought this the bronze era was found in South America, but actually 100 years earlier it was found in Europe or something. And so 
they create knowledge even though it's in plain sight because now as people do research and they're, and they're looking over here to kind of finish something over here the database reveals something that someone in Australia typed in that someone else in, in uh, South Carolina checked but it gets in a database and that's a game changer. Thank you sir. Um, I'll also add that it makes some of these materials available to people with visual disabilities for the first time. So if you, you, if you have a visual disability, it's very hard for you to read an image of, of, of scan text, you know. Um, and also handwriting can be hard to parse. So having this material in machine readable format makes it possible for people who use screen readers to read this for the first time in some cases. Yeah? Uh, excuse me, I know copyright is a huge issue, so I don't expect you to be able to expound on all of that, but are the images, uh, particularly photographs uh, and maybe even these types of images of, of handwriting, we can't use those, right? Those are just for us to look at, or, or, or how is that? So that's a great question. The question is about copyright, so um, can we reuse these materials? Um, are, they, are they under copyright? And uh, we, um, much of the material that we post online is available to reuse and reuse um, to the extent possible. So actually our digitization program prioritizes material that's, uh, that's um, free from copyright with the idea that, so the WPA posters are a great example of something that um, I encourage you to print one out and put it on your wall because they're so cool. Um, the, uh, each item on the website will say um, what the rights uh, are. Um, and also every month we do a new um, free to use and reuse section on the bottom of the website. So there are these amazing images for, for, the, for whatever use you, you would like to use them. So in some way, uh, modern data <coughs> is digital to a large extent, but it doesn't mean that the data that we're getting today from whether it's newspapers or other media is necessarily searchable, actionable, usable right away. So how do we make sure that going forward, we continue to catalog in a way which allows us then to access it uh, and not have to redo the work for the current state of data? So your question is, um, we are having to do some retrospective work to make these materials more usable in a computational way. How do we look forward and make sure that we are, you know, like benefiting the people that come after us. Is that, is that right? Well, how do we make sure that our modern newspapers, right, but even more so, all the, the going well beyond newspapers, you know, the, all of internet, is actually usable, even though it is digital, but it's not necessarily usable and catalogable and searchable and then in the same way that you're making this historical data usable. How do we make sure that going forward we put in place the right way to, to, to organize and keep and manage that data? So how do we, you know, the volume of information that's being created in a digital world, newspapers, the internet, how are we making sure that we're preserving that and making it usable? That's a, you know, that's a question that we um, obviously think, think a lot about. Uh, I think that the answer to that is, is complicated and it depends on sort of what the use is and what the thing that you're describing is. I am really pleased to share that we, um, just last year, um, so a lot of our collections at the Library of Congress come fr from U.S. copyright demand and deposit. So you might know that if you write a book, um, if you deposit a copy with the Library of Congress, you get some legal, certain legal protections. Um, and so that's the 20,000 volumes that I mentioned, those come through copyright deposit. Um, 
so we, that's all in law and regulation, and so changing that is very, takes a long time and is very deliberate. But we were just able to put in a regulation change that allowed um, newspaper, newspaper publishers to send us digital copies of newspapers instead of microfilm. That's better for everybody. They don't have to print microfilm just for us, and we have these digital copies. We're working format by format to make that more, to make that true for all of the formats to the extent possible. And so what that means is that we are now getting modern newspapers that have the images and are full text searchable. Um, that, and these are co under copyright, obviously, so you can't see this on the open web, but you can see it in the reading rooms. Um, we are also getting e-books. Um, so, we're thinking about how can we expand that to recorded sound, to moving images, to all these other formats. Um, but the process is very deliberate and slow. And, and when I was a younger person, um, I, I felt really frustrated by how, how slow we moved. Um, and now that I am a little bit older, um, not, not very much older, <laughs> now that I'm a little bit older, I think it's actually a really huge benefit of libraries, that we move very deliberately and slowly. Um, and that libraries, you know, public libraries are sometimes on the forefront of, of um, user, um, user technology, but in terms of how we build our infrastructure, we're very careful. So we're not jumping to new formats, right, because we're thinking about the long-term sustainability of it. Um, and so I think being slow and deliberate is actually really appropriate, but making forward progress always. Yes? What about things <coughs> like TV shows and movies and uh, interviews of politicians on TV and stuff like that? Yeah, so that's, all, that's also part of the collections. Um, the, uh, we have a huge facility in Culpeper, Virginia that used to be um, part of the Federal Reserve. It used to store the money um, for when there was like a you know, zombie apocalypse or whatever. There was a, a lot of gold there. Um, and I don't know what they did with all of that gold and money, but it's not there anymore. And now it's, um, the, uh, so we have, um, we have a, a, the f film and video and movies, and they're experts at preserving and making use of that. Um, and so the, some of the movies are online. Um, so there, uh, you, you might know um, that a lot of text has aged out of copyright. So you know, Shakespeare, Jane Austen, that's all available for whatever use you'd like to put in it. The, um, no recorded sound has aged out of copyright yet, um, so because the copyright law for recorded sound came so much later. Um, so there's not a lot of public domain uh, recording, recorded um, sound or um, moving image, but some of it is available online. And the best way to, if you wanted to make use of that, is to contact a reference librarian through Ask a Librarian. Uh, earlier you mentioned tweets. So it made, it made me wonder, which parts of the internet get priority Gosh, that's such a great, I should not have given a talk. I should just ask, let, let you ask questions. This is so fun. Uh, so the question is, um, uh, earlier we talked about the tweets, the Twitter archive. How do we prioritize what parts of the internet get, um, get preserved? And the answer is that we do the same way we do it in, in books and tangible media. So we have subject matter experts um, at the library who every, you know, every so often they decide what books we're going to save. And they also look at like web archives and other, um, other digital forms of media and decide what collections they're going to they're gonna save. So um, the web archiving collection, for example, is, is a really rich resource. Um, we have um, web archives of election material, um, of the Olympics, um, and those are all curated by curators in the exact same way we do tangible. Yeah. So we're here in this really globalized world now. Um, are there other countries that are doing similar things and are there like cooperations that you guys are doing with them to make sure that multinational reference stuff is kept? 
yeah, so the question is, in sort of this globalized world, how does that affect um, what we're keeping and what partnerships we're, we're, we're is that fair? Okay. Um, that's a, also another good question. Um, so um, an interesting fact about the library's collections is it's about, it's not quite, it's less than half non-English language. And so we have, um, we have the, the largest collection of um, a lot of foreign language material outside of that country's national library. Um, and um, so a lot of, we, have we have a lot of um, catalogers who speak other languages to make that material available. And um, we have a number of international partnerships. So one of them is international exchange. So if we're going to deaccession something from the collection, we offer it to international partners. Um, we, in our work in labs, have, are, part of, are happy to be part of an international community of people doing similar work in Norway, in the British Library, and other, um, in other um, national libraries and, and research libraries throughout the world. I'm trying to think of other examples. Um, we have uh, overseas offices, actually, in, in a number of countries, uh, and they do web archiving. So it's some of the really neat web archives are from, you know, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and around elections there. So uh, I think, you know, uh, we, we, we exist primarily to serve Americans. So our, our vision is that all Americans are connected to the Library of Congress. But knowing that in serving, Ameri serving Americans, we need an international collection and a broad focus. What do you do in case of disaster recovery in terms of backup? With a digital collection, you can make multiple copies of that and park it around the planet so it'll be preserved. The building itself, if that were destroyed, you'd lose all the things you haven't digitized. Yeah, that's, uh, so the question is what about disaster recovery? You can make copies of things intangible, but it's hard to do that in physical. Um, so I think the answer is that we're moving to a lot of off-site storage to places that are not in, you know, on Capitol Hill. Like, we literally are next to the Capitol building. And so that's, you know, a known risk factor. I work there, so let's not bring it up again. <laughs> um, um, so we're, we move a lot of materials off-site, which, you know, has its pros and cons, because then it's not available for ready reference, right? It takes about a day to get material from an off-site location. Um, digitization is obviously a key um, strategy, so we have prioritized American treasures in our digitization, so in the worst, in the case of the worst. But we also have, um, you know, fire protection. We have a lot of protections in place. Uh, we have an amazing preservation team who thinks a lot about this. Um, we have cold storage. Uh, so there's, there's ways we protect the tangible um, artifacts, and, and um, you know, that's, it's a challenge in every library and archive. I'm curious to hear more about the Innovators in Residence program, like how the model for how one can become one, and maybe even kind of make it so it's like for smaller projects that can be done remotely that people can contribute to. So the question is about the Innovator in Residence pro pro program and um, how one can apply and uh, what are the different models for, for projects. Um, I have good news on that front. Uh, we have an open call for applications. So if you're interested, please do apply and share it with people that you think might be interested. Um, we use the word in residence very lightly. <laughs> so there is a residency requirement, but I think it's it might be like one week a month or something like that, and it can be sort of broken up. Um, we wanted to make sure that we could be inclusive of people who have family responsibilities or other responsibilities that that you know don't let them move to Washington D.C. for a year. Um, so um, please check it out and um, and and think about it. Yeah. Yes. What don't you collect? What don't we collect? Oh, great question. We um, we don't collect much in the area of agriculture. 
because uh, there's a National Agricultural Library. We don't collect much in the way of medicine because that's the National uh, Library of Medicine. We don't collect, um, we don't collect much 3D objects. Um, so there are collection policy statements, if you're interested in digging in on this, on the website, um, lsu.gov, where you can see what we collect and how much. Um, we don't collect federal records, because that is the National uh, Archives. Um, what else? What am I missing? Human beings? I mean, <laughs> I well, physical, human beings. physical human beings. Yeah, just for a time, right? Like, I guess they collected me, but <laughs> not forever. <laughs> Books are 3D, yeah, that's right, yeah. We have the world's largest collection of crystal flutes in the world, and I don't mean like cocktail, I mean like, so there are a bunch of like very unusual um, like 3D object collections that, um, that uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, are the tools available through the lab's website made available for other organizations to use when they're collection? The question is, are the tools that are available on the lab's website made available uh, through um, for other people to use? And the answer is, to the greatest extent, yes. I really believe, personally, um, and not speaking on behalf of the institution right now, but just Kate Zord, that if the American public pay for it through appropriations, um, and it's for the benefit of the American public, it should be theirs. Um, so as much as possible, we make all of our material open source. And uh, I think the best example of that is the application that runs the crowdsourcing project. So that is all open source, all documented, and we're really hoping that other cultural heritage organizations use it. Uh, along with the Innovator in Residence program, uh, do you also have an Artist in Residence program? And second question, do you ever throw anything away? Oh, okay. First question, um, along with the Innovator in Residence program, do we have an Artist in Residence program? Um, I think that they're actually the same. Um, so we encourage artists to apply for the Innovator in Residence program, and, and we've had one. Um, I think Jer Thorpe was our first Innovator in Residence, and he's an artist, and his work made me understand art in a new way. It was, it was really profound for me. Um, but we want to be, um, you know, we have one pot of money. <laughs> but we're hoping that, you know, data journalists, journalists, um, storytellers of all kind, including artists, apply. Um, and the second question is, do we ever throw any, anything away? Is there, a, is there a librarian in the room? <laughs> yes, okay. So the, um, the, the answer is affirmatively yes and all the time, although people get really mad about it. <laughs> so um, as my, my colleagues will, will tell you, weeding is a key part of, of the library. So what we don't want is to build, a, we don't want to hoard. We're not dragons. And we don't want to build stinking information dumpsters, right? With every, like that's not helpful to anybody. Um, so we do weed, we throw things out. Uh, people get really upset, you know, because they, um, you know, they, get, they get worried that we're throwing valuable items out. At the library, we are very careful in our weeding. We, we weed very little. And um, when we do, we um, offer it for, um, through many programs. So hardly anything gets thrown out. It gets, it gets um, reused and repurposed through other libraries and organizations. So I just want to say that um, I was able to, last June during ALA, uh, go and help a group from Puerto Rico to actually grab books for preservation for a future preservation program in Puerto Rico. And the Library of Congress was donating all of that. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. I have a question about um, machine learning. You kind of briefly touched on some of the like ethical concerns around that. I'm kind of wondering like what are some of those concerns? And then 
what are some of the ways that libraries or the Library of Congress can work around those in the future? So the question is, um, what are some of the ethical concerns around machine learning? Um, and I think when I think of the analogy for this, um, I think about balsamic vinegar. And when you're boiling down balsamic vinegar to make like, you know, balsamic reduction, um, it intensifies the flavor of that balsamic vinegar. So if you use a really crappy balsamic vinegar, it's going to be a really crappy reduction. And if you use like a 15 year, you're going to get something like velvety and luxurious. And in the same way, um, machine learning can in, in, intensify biases that are inherent in the collection. Um, and so that's one of the things that we're thinking about. I think, you know, you, you've all heard the news about, you know, that um, some of the um, social media companies using machine learning in ways that are, you know, maybe concerning to some citizens. And um, we want to make sure that we're not replicating some of those uh, practices in, in ways that can be potentially harmful. So you mentioned social media companies. Has the, the library partnered with any of the Instagrams or Facebooks in terms of getting contact like you do with the newspaper media? Yeah, so the question is, um, has the library partnered with um, any of the social media companies to get uh, content? I think the most famous example of this is the Twitter archive. So when Twitter was a baby, like a newborn baby social media site, we entered into an agreement with them to collect all of the tweets, which we did for about 10 years. Um, and uh, that the, the usage exploded. And it was a really uh, interesting experience for us to learn how to scale quickly. Um, we have also done uh, partnerships with Flickr. Um, so that was a really fun one. I actually wrote the code to collect this. Um, and uh, so the Folklife Center, the American Folklife Center, who th they exist to um, record and share American folk cultures, um, ask people to share about their Halloween traditions in photography and then tag it. And then we went in and collected those materials to, uh, to preserve. Um, trying to think of what else. We have a couple other examples. Um, but I think that's a really interesting um, you know, sort of an area of exploration about how we collect these. I mean, if you think about when you were a child, how many photographs existed in the world and how many photographs exist now in the world, it is, it is uh, you know, exponential doesn't even begin to characterize it. And how do we collect that in a way that can be useful for research and is meaningful and isn't just like a, you know, pile of photographs is, is something that we, we continue to think about. So you mentioned you're a coder. How does one learn to code that, you know, without having to take those college courses? And I feel like that's a very important skill set to learn nowadays. I don't really have my head wrapped around how to actually learn. Um, so. The question is, how do you learn to code uh, without going to college? And I think um, one of the things that I would uh, turn you to is um, our website. Um, so we have a couple of tools. They're not tutorials, but they're ways that you can play around um, without having a lot of expertise, expertise in writing software applications. And so I would, I would um, in terms of writing code, I would distinguish between writing software applications, so writing web applications that do stuff, and writing code to learn things. And so, one of the, yes? Please finish, but I want to, want to add to it specifically for Columbus, so yes. Okay, oh good, okay. Um, and so we have a number of um, tools on our website at uh, LC for Robots that allow you to play with our API and do some like simple things to get your feet wet. I think the heart, one of, to me, one of the hardest things in teaching someone to, to code is, um, 
it can be really frustrating to get to the point where you get an actual usable result. And so what, what we've provided here are Jupyter notebooks that are running code where you can change some parameters and get your feet wet that way. Um, and that way you can see a result right away. And if you have something specific to... So Tanya Berger-Wolf, uh, director of the Translational Data Analytics Institute here at the Ohio State University, we offer through the Translational Data Analytics Institute, we are already offering and increasing the offerings of uh, from basic coding skills to kind of more uh, sophisticated data analytics and from short, very, very short courses, couple of hours, workshops to more semester long and just about to launch professional uh, a master's in translational data analytics for professional students. Thank you. I think we probably have time for one more if anybody's got something. Yes? You talked earlier a little bit about the international collection. I'm just wondering how you decide what belongs in the Library of Congress and what belongs with that country to send them to send back to that. So how we decide what belongs at the Library of Congress and what belongs to that country. Um, this is not something I have a ton of expertise in. Um, uh, generally, actually, I, 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 don't, I don't have the answer to your question. I'm sorry. I can, I can find out and get back to you. Yeah. Yes? How many people work there? I think we're about 2,500 right now. Um, but that is important to know that not all of those people work in the library part of the library. We also are home to the U.S. Copyright um, Office. We uh, are also home to CRS that writes reports for Congress and the National Library Service for, for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, which I should tell you about actually because it's really helpful and useful resource. So the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped provides um, talking books and braille books for any American um, with a visual disability or other disability that prevents them from holding the, um, the printed word. Does anybody know, does anybody use this or know somebody who uses this? Oh man, please yeah, tell your relatives because if you have a sight disability or you can't hold a printed book, the library will send you free talking books or braille books. Um, and it's a huge service to the American public that I think not, not a lot of people know about. Even though we, read, we ran some really amazing radio ads that were very cute, um, very heartwarming. Oh. I think we're going to go on to the tape upstairs. <laughs> so Kate will join us up there, and I hope you will too. And thanks again for a great time. Thank you so much. <laughs>